So I kept reading and listening and then went forward in the podcast. Then I went to your website and I looked at the size you have for the different properties and the numbers. So I started learning about the numbers and what they meant. And being the skeptic I am and being a techie, I actually wrote a program to go and scrape your website and other people's websites and redo the calculations just so I could prove it out myself. And eventually I came to the conclusion that real estate is a great deal. Hey, I'd like to introduce someone whose voice you've heard on the show before, and that is Chad. And we have a fantastic little YouTube raffle for you. Chad, what's it all about? Yes, we have an exciting opportunity coming up for you to be able to win a free ticket to meet the masters coming up in March or a $500 travel allowance. Here's what you need to do to be able to win one of those things. We will be selecting a winner on March 4th when the contest ends. And all you have to do is go to the YouTube channel, which is youtube.com slash Jason Hartman Real Estate. Subscribe if you haven't already. Then pick any video to watch. There's a variety of categories, everything about real estate investing from finding the right markets, analyzing real estate deals, the economics of real estate investing, property management, financing. There's a whole wide range of videos that you can choose from and choose one that you think would be interesting to you. Watch it and then go to the comments section and comment just a quick one sentence comment on something that you learned from that video and make sure to include the hashtag JH live in the comment and that will enter you into this raffle. Okay, so that's real easy. You just go to youtube.com slash Jason Hartman Real Estate, subscribe to the channel, and then watch any video you like and make a comment below the video of one thing you learned, include the hashtag JHLive, and that will enter you in the raffle to win a free ticket to meet the masters or a $500 travel allowance. This ends on March 4th, so be sure to get it done before March 4th. We look forward to seeing you at Meet the Masters. Thanks for joining us, Chad. Thanks. Welcome to the Creating Wealth Show with Jason Hartman. You're about to learn a new slant on investing, some exciting techniques, and fresh new approaches to the world's most historically proven asset class that will enable you to create more wealth and freedom than you ever thought possible. Jason is a genuine, self-made multimillionaire who's actually been there and done it. He's a successful investor, lender, developer, and entrepreneur who's owned properties in 11 states, had hundreds of tenants and been involved in thousands of real estate transactions. This program will help you follow in Jason's footsteps on the road to your financial independence day. You really can do it. And now, here's your host, Jason Hartman, with the complete solution for real estate investors. Welcome listeners from around the world from 165 countries. This is your host, Jason Hartman, and this is episode 1139-1139. Thank you for joining us, and I've got Adam here with me today as we introduce today's guest. Adam, how are you? I'm doing well. I'm doing well. Good to have you back, and uh, well, hey, before we introduce today's guest, where we're going to talk about one of your favorite topics, your new favorite topic, <laughs> modern monetary theory. It'll Otherwise, get you out of Facebook groups, people. Yes, yes, yes. So I invite, uh, this is funny, I invite Adam to this economics Facebook group that I'm in, and I really like this group because I get some interesting ideas, some of which I talk about here on the show with you listeners. Adam responds to a post very humbly and says he's interested in modern monetary theory, MMT, and 
the host just kick you right out and <laughs> says he doesn't want to argue with socialists like you, Adam. So, <laughs> oh, well, you win some, you lose some. Yeah. Yeah. See, now I hate socialism, but we're still friends. <laughs> and what I'm what I was preaching, it's not even socialism in some regards. So yeah. uh, if you want to talk to me about it, you can talk to me about it at uh, Meet the Masters. I booked my flight and got my ticket and everything last week. So I'll be there. You can come okay. talk to me about it. And, you know, just in all fairness to Adam. <laughs> He's not really a socialist, but I kind of tease him about it, you know. Anyway, it's a good debate. Anyway, hey, before we get to our guest today, so who is our guest? We're going to we're going to talk. The main topic of the show is modern monetary theory and MMT. And of course, we had Mike Norman on before. That was a big interview. Everybody really liked that, even though he hung up on me at first. But then I got him back on the phone. and He did the interview. But before we do that, we're going to go to the opposite side of the spectrum. And I got to tell you, Adam, I just read a New York Times article about George Gilder from 2003. And I think you read the same article because I passed it off to you. Mm -hmm. And he is so fascinating. Now, I'm super excited about having him as one of our keynote speakers at Meet the Masters. Not enough of you listening understand how significant of a thought leader George Gilder is. I don't want to say was. Maybe it's fair to say he's kind of past the peak of his career. I mean, you know, he's in his 70s now, but he's a big deal. When I first met him on a Forbes investor cruise going through Scandinavia and Russia on Crystal Cruise Lines, that must have been about 19, 20 years ago. And I mean, he was the most revered guy how many newsletter subscribers did he have, Adam? I think it was like 110,000, right? Yeah, from what I saw, it peaked at around 110,000. Yeah. And I a want mere. you to focus. <laughs> yeah, a, a mere 110,000 newsletter subscribers, right? So he had a huge newsletter following. And I think his newsletter back then was like $390 a year. So folks, do the math on that one and understand what a big deal George Gilder was. I believe he's written 32 books. The most famous of his books, Wealth and Poverty, published in the 80s, was one of Ronald Reagan's favorite books, I believe, right? Yes. Apparently, he's one of the most quoted people that Reagan ever had. Like, Reagan quoted him the most of anybody alive. Yeah, yeah, amazing. And he was a speechwriter for, what, Nixon and for who Nixon, else? Nixon, for Nelson Rockefeller, and George Romney. Wow. <laughs> I mean, a couple names you might have heard of before. Yeah, this guy's had quite a career. And he is one of our keynote speakers at Meet the Masters. And you'll all get photo ops with him. You know, it's just going to be a great time. If you bought, you know, elite level access tickets, you can hang out with the speakers in the green room and so forth. And um, I think that VIP is included in that too. So VIP or elite, you can hang out in the green room, I believe. Both of those include that. So it's going to be a pretty awesome event. What else can we tell people about George Gilder before we go the, to the opposite side of the spectrum and talk about MMT? <laughs> well, he was big enough that he had 110,000 subscribers, but he also was big enough that when he spoke, he was one of those people kind of like uh, Buffett. When he spoke, the market reacted. They, would oh, say, yeah. they said in this New York Times article, he would mention a company and say, hey, they're doing all right. And they would their stock price was up 80, 100 percent. And this was back in, you know, 98, 99. Okay. And so you think, well, back then he was a big deal. Well, there was an article whenever I was researching him from Forbes from last February, actually, by Rich Carlgaard, where he interviewed him about uh, 
blockchain. So right. he has he might be seventy nine years old, but over the past twenty years he hasn't left the field. No, he's still he there. He's still learning. He's he's up to speed on everything. Oh yeah, no, he's he's incredibly knowledgeable. He's a real intellect. You know, we had Rich Carlgard on the show. Uh, you know, he's the editor of Forbes magazine, and you know he's been on the show before. It's amazing how interesting. I mean, Gilder has some really interesting theories. You know, back in the day, he talked about the blogosphere, then the telecosm. He coins these words. You know, like you said, the stock market reacted to his recommendations. He sure has a way of pissing off the feminist. Uh, the National Organization for Women said he was a chauvinist and <laughs> gave him an award to that effect, <laughs> which is not really true or fair in my opinion. But it's kind of interesting that, you know, he had that much uh, PR. And what else can we tell uh, about him? He's um, there's a few other things I wanted to say about him before we get to our guest. I found it interesting that one of the articles I read basically showed that he forecast basically cutting the cable that people were right. going to stop watching TV and they were going to have everything essentially on like a portable device, which mm-hmm. we have. Right. I, mean, right. I know right. a ton of people who've cut cord. And what's interesting about that cord cutting concept, in other words, people getting rid of their TV subscriptions to just have internet and streaming services. That's what that is referring to. And the New York times article from October 19th, 2003 is the revolution is coming, comma, eventually. And so Gilder was just early on a lot of this stuff, you know. A lot of his predictions did come true, but they came true a little late. And hey, when you make predictions, it's all about timing, folks. So, you know, that's... Especially you can, around the 99-2000 timeframe. Yeah, the dot-com bubble and, uh, and, and bust. Oh, but here's the thing I wanted you to know. He used to get $100,000 to do a speech, a hundred grand was his speaking fee. And folks, let me tell you, we are not paying him that much. Okay. But that's very significant. And Merrill Lynch valued Gilder Publishing at 150 to $200 million. And they were going to do an IPO on that company. And uh, wow, that's amazing. He, he really has done some amazing things in his career. And and this article is quite interesting. Yeah, and if you don't want to necessarily pay for your ticket or your flight, you can always enter the YouTube promotion that we have going on. And uh, there's no excuse not to come and see this guy speak. That's right. That's right. And then, of course, Tom Wheelwright will be there, uh, Rich Dad Advisor, talking about uh, taxes and, and what real estate investors can do to really uh, decrease their tax liability. Taxes are the single largest expense in all of our lives. And then myself and some other speakers we have will be covering the big, boring, and profitable idea that you've heard us talk about on the past few episodes as well. So it's going to be a great Meet the Masters. I'm, I'm just super excited about it. Come out and see us, jasonhartman.com slash masters. Adam, anything else before we get to our guest? I'm excited for the interview. All right, let's talk about MMT once again and uh, see how that applies to us as real estate investors. Here we go. It's my pleasure to welcome Dr. Randy Ray. He is a senior scholar at the Levy Economics Institute of Bard College, 
past president of the Association for Institutionalist Thought, and the author of several books, including his latest, Why Minsky Matters, an introduction to a maverick economist, uh, Modern Monetary Theory, a primer on macroeconomics for sovereign monetary systems, and Understanding Modern Money, the key to full employment and price stability. Randy, welcome. How are you? Hi, thanks a lot for having me on. Yeah, good, good. And I didn't mention some of your past uh, bio and resume. It's uh, pretty phenomenal. You were a professor in Kansas City and quite a few other things too, <laughs> but we didn't we didn't dive into those. Minsky, is this the economist nobody's heard of? Well, uh, every time there is a major financial crisis, people will write about his work. And after the global financial crisis, Many, many economists wrote about him, including Paul Krugman. He wrote a, one of his uh, columns titled The Night We Reread Minsky. What really um, sort of typifies Minsky? Was it the fact that he predicted the Great Recession so many years in advance? Well, he developed a theory of why it is that capitalist economies tend to fall into these financial crises. So he developed what's called the financial instability hypothesis which explains why what he would call a run of good times, that is, you know, where everything seems to be going just great, eventually develops the conditions in which a crisis becomes likely and, you know, will occur. So that's what he's best known for. He also had a longer sort of an evolutionary view to how the economy evolves over very long periods of time that he developed beginning in the 1950s. And that's why I could say that even back in the 50s, he foresaw the global financial crisis of 2007 in the sense that he explained how the capitalist economy was going to evolve over the whole post-war period from a very robust financial system in which a deep crisis really was virtually impossible to the point where it became essentially inevitable. Mm -hmm. When Minsky talked about those cycles of, you know, why things seem to be going well, and then it sets up all the problems that we'll be facing, uh, you know, a few years later, how is that different from the business cycle that the Austrian economists would talk about? First, uh, this sort of a long-term trend, but even his financial instability hypothesis were not simply a theory of a business cycle. It was a theory of the transformation of the financial system itself. And the financial crises don't necessarily occur in the business cycle downturn. You can have a, a financial crisis that is not connected at all to a downturn. The 1987 stock market crash did not result in a recession. Mm -hmm. Or you can have the two things occur at the same time. And when they do, the outcome is very much worse. So in 2007, we not only had the worst financial collapse since 1929, we also had the deepest recession since the uh, Great Depression. So mm -hmm. those two things, when they do occur together, it's very, very hard to get out of them. Mm -hmm. So give us a little primer, if you would. We've done exactly one other episode in about 5,000 episodes total on modern monetary theory, otherwise known as MMT. And it has many critics out there. 
I take it from the title of your book. You're you're a believer in in this idea. Everybody thinks different things. Some like Hayek, some like Keynes, you know, whatever, right? What is MMT and, and why is it a good theory? Well, there are, let's say, two aspects or two levels of argument in MMT. So the first level is describing the way things actually work. And the second level is policy proposals. And at the first level, what we wanted to do was to explain how the monetary system actually works, and especially focusing on the most misunderstood part of the monetary system, which is the role that the government's money plays in the financial system. And so that then leads to describing how fiscal policy and how monetary policy actually work. And believe it or not, economists really did not, and most of them still do not, have a good handle on how the government really spends. Mm -hmm. There is so much misunderstanding. So what we've tried to do over the past 25 years is to um, improve that understanding And let me just say, for the most part, we are not claiming when we're doing this that we're doing something completely new. We have gone back through economic history and through the history of economic thought. And we've shown it's actually very, very easy to find, let's say, smart people in the past who have said exactly the same thing that we're saying today. It was unfortunately lost I would say from 1960 until the mid-90s when we tried to recover it. So a big part of what we're doing is recovering understanding that was even common in the past and it was lost in the post-war period. Okay, so what is it though? Like say that like Keynesianism, right, is, you know, the prime the pump idea, right? That, you know, the government sometimes needs to pump money into the system to kind of get it going, right? What does MMT fundamentally say, like how things should work? Just the very broad strokes, the very kind of high level of what it is. And Well, when you use the word should, we have now moved to the second agenda, which is the policy proposals, you see. Right. So the first is the description. And what I'm saying is that what we're arguing is something separate from the the Keynesian idea of pump priming. What we are doing is explaining how government actually spends. And so let's go back to the period when Keynesian ideas were developing, right at the end of World War II. During World War II, the U.S. government's budget deficit went to 25% of GDP. The deficit was 25% of GDP. Government spending was 50% of GDP. The government debt ratio coming out of World War II was 100% of GDP. Everybody at that time understood that there's nothing necessarily wrong with running a deficit. Everyone understood that a significant amount of government spending was sort of paid for by printing money. Mm -hmm. And everyone understood there is nothing wrong with this. Right, right. Beardsley Rummel, who was the president of the New York Fed, which is the most important branch of the Fed, of course, Mm -hmm. wrote a paper entitled, Taxes for Revenue are Obsolete 
We do not need taxes for revenue purposes. Well, I, I agree. We we can just use inflation as the tax, right? Well, no, it's not inflationary, okay. uh, not necessarily inflationary. Okay. He said we do need taxes to serve other purposes, including fighting inflation. So he does list that mm-hmm. as a reason to use taxes. But what he's saying is governments don't really spend tax revenue. Okay, They spend first. And then if they have increased demand too much, they tax away some of the demand. It's perfectly legitimate to argue that you need taxes to fight inflation. And that was his point. It's not legitimate to argue that government spending itself is constrained by your tax revenue. That's what he meant by saying it's obsolete. Right. In other words, so the government, just very simple, for World War II, right, to finance that huge project called World War II, the government can create money, they can print, in other words, that that's okay. But I, I think the reason most people would say that's okay for a time is that it's temporary, right? They'll bring things back into line when the crisis ends. I think many people will agree with what you just said. Rommel would not. Okay. He is not arguing in a war. He is saying the war has actually taught us this. Okay, got it. We we now understand that taxes are not for revenue. Mm -hmm. Now, what I said is, you know, we've gone back in time and, and looked at, well, let's say all the way back to the American colonies. The American colonies issued paper money. It was the first significant issue of paper money in the West. China had done it earlier, but in Western societies, this was a new thing. Mm-hmm. The American colonies were prohibited from issuing coin, so they really had no alternative. England would not let them issue coin, and so they issued paper money. And whenever one of the colonial congresses would issue money, paper money, at the same time, they would enact a tax act called a redemption tax. And they understood that what they did was they spent the notes into existence Mm -hmm. and then they taxed them back in redemption and burned them. So what I'm saying is they understood the revenue is not to give you the money to spend. You spend the money and you use the taxes to take the money out of the economy so it won't cause inflation. Mm -hmm. This also is the same idea that Rommel was putting forward a couple hundred years later. So the purpose of the tax is to get the money out of the economy so that it won't cause inflation. Okay. It's not for revenue purposes. That, that's that's really uh, quite interesting, actually, because so the government is basically realizing or, or the government in, you know, in cahoots with the central bank is realizing that, look, all these dollars we printed are out there. We want to do a recall because they're going to cause inflation because classical definition, right? You know, too many dollars chasing a limited supply of goods and services. So we got to recall some of that money through taxation to keep it from being inflationary. Fascinating. That's right. Yeah. That's okay. right. But that's not all of MMT. That's just one element. No, but this is extremely important because, okay, if I propose to you, I don't know, a Green New Deal. Mm-hmm. Or anything else. And if you agree with me, you know, yeah, actually, there's some aspects of that yeah. proposal that I like. Yeah, I want to take a train is, to Hawaii, a high-speed train to Hawaii. Okay. <laughs> so what, what is the very first question anyone will ask you, let's say you appear at a press conference, 
you absolutely know with certainty a reporter is going to stand up thinking they're very bright and ask you, how are you going to pay for it? Okay? Right. What Rommel is saying, what the American colonists understood is you pay for it by issuing money. Mm-hmm. That's how you pay for you it. You pay for it by printing, now, right? And all the Austrians will say you're crazy because you're going to cause all this inflation, right? That's right. Okay. But we know the answer to that. And you already gave the correct answer. Well, we I didn't say I agreed with it, but, <laughs> but it's, yeah, I thought well, it you was don't interesting. Have to agree with yeah, it, okay. But it is the yeah. correct answer. Right that we will withdraw the money out if it proves to be inflationary. Mm -hmm. Just one sec. Let's look at like a, maybe an example of that. I don't know the numbers offhand. You probably do. But the government during the financial crisis and immediately following it, I don't know, I think during Obama's term, we added about, you know, $8 trillion, something like that. We're at about 20, 22 trillion now, I think. About a trillion a year. Did we recall all of that through taxes? I don't know what the tax revenue is. I can't remember. That's not a figure I pay much attention to. You know, did we recall all of those dollars or are we in a position now where there are more dollars out there and it's going to take a few years to recall them and that's why we've already had some inflation? Or in the last 10 years, what's can you give us a kind of a breakdown of, of what's happened? At the peak of the crisis, the budget deficit did go to $1 trillion in a year, mm-hmm. okay? Yep. And so that is the net addition of, we could say, government money to the economy. So that's net of the taxes that it got because this is the deficit. So it spent, I don't know, $3 trillion and got $2 trillion in taxes. There's $1 trillion left out there. Let me just add one footnote. So that was the fiscal policy part of the, say, bailout of the economy. The Fed actually created $29 trillion <laughs> over the course of its bailout of the financial system. It actually lent and spent $29 trillion into the financial system right. trying to save the banks. Yeah, yeah. And the, you know a lot of that is still left out there in the form of excess reserves of $4 trillion held by the banks. And the Fed is trying to figure out how to get those out of the banks now. Mm-hmm. So anyway, what I'm saying is the fiscal part actually is extremely small compared to the monetary policy part of creation of money to try to save the economy. Mm-hmm. Now, that trillion dollar deficit added to the outstanding government debt stock. So that debt is now, you're right, about 20 trillion. There's about 20 trillion in government bonds out there in the global economy. About 40% are held outside the U.S., about 60% are held within the U.S. So most of the dollars that were spent in all of the deficits that eventually led to that $20 trillion of debt that's accumulated, most of those dollars were used to buy the bonds. So the dollars were replaced by treasury bonds that are now sitting out there in our economy and around the world. The question is, did that trillion dollar deficit, I think the peak was in 2009, did that lead to inflation? And the answer is, Clearly, no, it did not lead to inflation. In fact, the Fed missed its inflation targets every year and still misses them because inflation is too low. Let me just give you a little devil's advocate on that for a moment. You know, I always try to ask, compared to what? And so what I might argue on that, I mean, you know, tell me if I'm wrong, we might have had a lot more deflation, like that was already baked into the cake, 
had that not been done. So it actually did cause inflation. It was just below the target. And it was, we were already so underwater in such a deflationary spiral that we did have some inflation. It's just compared to what? It's where we are in the trough. It kept us, yeah, it kept us from perhaps a major deflation. We had a major deflation in the 30s. And recovering from that was very much worse than our recovery from this. And I'm not saying we did a good job this time. By my reckoning, we still haven't quite recovered 10 years later. But the Great Depression was, I think, objectively much worse than this. Oh, yeah, no, no one will disagree with you on that. Some would say, they would argue that when I had Mike Norman on the show, I got a lot of feedback on that interview. It was a really interesting interview. You know, he's a big promoter of MMT. And, and then I had Peter Schiff on before, right? And Peter Schiff is like, I call him the master of the soundbite, but he's just always wrong. <laughs> and I don't want to say always, but a lot, you know, but he sounds good. He's a very convincing guy. And Schiff would argue, and it seemed to make sense, he would argue that, like, Mike Norman's idea is sort of fantasy land, that you can just print your way out of every problem, you know? I mean, at the end of the day, that's not a sound money policy, is it, to just, you know, buy whatever you want, just print whatever you want and buy it? I mean, that can't be a, a system that actually works in the extreme, right? Like, you can't just create prosperity out of thin air, or can you? You definitely can do better than we did. The test is, did we have, for this period of 10 years of recovery, did we have unemployed people who were willing to work? Did we have firms who had excess capacity who, if there had been sales opportunities, would have produced more to sell more? That's the test. And I think it's pretty clear that we did have excess capacity and we had people who wanted to work and we have gone 10 years with almost no private investment because demand has been so sluggish that they are not investing even when profits were very high firms wouldn't invest because they can't see the sales so i think the evidence is pretty clear that if we had spent more we could have done better now Let's say that we're living in an economy that does not have much productive capacity, that uh, is not very technologically advanced, that doesn't have an educated workforce. Then I would agree with you, trying to spin your way to prosperity is not necessarily going to work. If you don't have the real resources that can give you prosperity, Spending more is not really going to help much, maybe over a very long period. In other words, the MMT philosophy doesn't work in Zimbabwe or even Venezuela or, you know, where you don't have you don't have a way to really pull society up by like a highly educated workforce that can create new technologies. Sounds like what you're saying. Spending alone won't do it. But, you know, I'm not going to say anything about those particular economies because mm-hmm. I don't know enough about them. Yeah. But let's say... Well, we know they have what about, inflation. <laughs> we do know that, right? Yeah. yeah, you can definitely get inflation by spending when you don't have the resources to buy. Okay. But let's go back to a country I do know, which is the United States in 1929. Yeah. In 1929, the U.S. was not a developed country. Maybe we were better off than Zimbabwe is now today but we were not a developed country. And then we had the the Great Depression. So 
we weren't a developed country and demand fell by about 50%. So output fell from a developing country standard to, you know, absolute poverty and even starvation. And so what Roosevelt comes in and uh, they fumble around for a while, but then they settle on a new deal. They put people to work. These people were not well-educated. They did not have high skills. Yeah, but they didn't but they need to brought, then. They built infrastructure. I mean, that was needed at the time, well, right? Yeah, but can Zimbabwe build infrastructure? Well, we took, yeah. We took workers with very little skill, very little education. We built thousands of schools. We built thousands of airports. Sure. We built thousands of public buildings. And, and, a, and an interstate dam. highway system. You know, yeah, don't forget and that. and the biggest <laughs> dam that had ever been built in the United States up to that point in right. time. Sure. We did all of that with mm-hmm. a very backward country mm-hmm. by spending more. But we weren't backward relative to the rest of the world. I mean, we were pretty much in the same... Yeah, we were. Really? We were. Okay. Now, there are parts of the country that were not, but I'm talking about the United States. Think about the projects that uh, they did in Appalachia, in Tennessee. These were very, I don't want to sound like I'm biased yeah. in parts of the country, but objectively, these were not developed parts of the country. Sure. These were places that had no roads, but there's still no not, electricity. Yeah, they're still not uh, exactly the centers for culture and uh, technology. <laughs> you know, I mean, yeah, but, there's but no I'm Silicon saying, Appalachia, relative, okay? Yeah, right? But relative to the developed countries in Europe, mm-hmm. we had parts of our country that were more third world yeah. than they were. Yeah, and enough. And we did move a long way toward developing. And we became by far the richest, most developed country on earth right. at that oh. time. Today, we're being left behind. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, there are a series of lucky things that America had, no question about it. You know, we we had two oceans to protect us from the war and all, all sorts of things that were very unique to America. And so we got to win the Industrial Revolution. But that's sort of another topic. What else do you want to say? I don't know what exact question <laughs> to ask you right now. <laughs> well, that was the descriptive part. So the government is not constrained by finance. Mm-hmm. Okay, it can put constraints on itself if mm-hmm. it wants to and say, oh, but we got to balance the budget. That's a self-imposed constraint. The economy doesn't constrain the government that way. So we always can afford to put our resources to work. So that's the first step of MMT, mm-hmm. understanding how you can use the financial system to put all of your resources to work. Yeah. The second part is the policy proposals. Okay. So what kinds of policies would make sense. And so the thing that MMT is most known for, the policy proposal, is a job guarantee. Mm -hmm. The job guarantee uses this understanding of how the monetary system works to answer the question, can we have full employment? Can we afford it? And how can we do it? So we've come up with the proposal for a job guarantee to ensure that all the labor resources get utilized. Mm -hmm. So that that is a policy proposal. Okay, so one one thing I do want to say, this is what I meant to say before, about the Great Depression is that the difference, and I think it's a pretty significant one, is that when we had these make-work programs as part of the New Deal, people were actually doing work that created value in the economy for decades to come. Obviously, we're still getting that value today. But now we have this welfare state where we're paying people not to work. <laughs> you know, yeah, we, how, how did we ever get to millions and millions of young people on disability? Where'd all these 
fake disabled people come from. I mean, you know, it's just everybody's just gaming the system. It's a scam. I think that's what bothers people. It bothers me, too. I'm opposed to offering welfare to someone who wants a job. I don't think it's in their interests, and it's definitely not in society's interest. Well, but a lot of people don't want a a job. job. (laughs) They don't even want a job. They just Well, that that is a different matter. But first, let's give a job to anyone who wants to work, and let's give them some work to do that will benefit society. And what we need now from a job guarantee is probably not Hoover Dam. That's probably not what we're going to employ people. As you said, you know, our technology is advanced. We don't build dams with manual labor anymore. We use huge machinery. So we got to find other things that are useful for people to do. Do you have an example? Do you have something in mind there? Part of it could be care for the environment. Part of it can be care for communities. And part of it can be uh, care for people. So this is focusing on let's say, the non-infrastructure types of spending. We do need infrastructure, but it's questionable how many of the currently unemployed would be useful building new infrastructure. So we're trying to focus on things that can be done by people who don't have those kinds of skills or maybe physical abilities and so on. So what we're formulating is care work. This could range from, you know, care for homebound uh, senior citizens, care for children, care for the communities, environmental cleanup and retrofitting buildings, housing mainly. Yeah, okay. All right. That kind of job. Got it, got it. Okay. Some of that was done by Roosevelt's New Deal too, planting trees. We need trees again. All right. It sounds pretty great. I mean, the government can just print money, create projects. Hopefully those projects are well managed and there's not a bunch of fraud like there is in Medicare and stuff like that. Um, And Medicaid, you know, those projects are well managed and successful. I get the idea of investing in the future. There's no question about it. it. It just scares me that, you know, you run that metaphorical printing press and sort of a seems like a bit of a fantasy land expectation that everything's just going to be great, you know, if you just... uh, We don't have any fantasies. We would not have the federal government set up these programs and try to run them. Oh, okay. Tell us about that. Uh, We would decentralize it. We want jobs created in every community because it makes no sense to move the unemployed around. Right. We want to give them jobs where they are. The communities that have the highest unemployment rates also happen to have the greatest needs for projects. So you match the unemployed to the projects in their communities that need to be done. You decentralize the uh, project proposals so that community groups, possibly local government, possibly state government, would formulate most of the projects. I would prefer to have not-for-profit community groups do everything they can do to create as many jobs as they can usefully use and also as they can manage, and then see if we need a role for government to play. We might find out we actually don't even need the government to create any jobs. Okay, well, that sounds good. For me, that would that would be the last resort. Okay. Let the community organizers who know the needs of their communities and know where the unemployed people are and what their skills are, 
let them organize the projects, put forward proposals. They need to be approved. This is going to be federal government spending. So the final approval is going to have to be somewhere, maybe in the Labor Department, Hmm. in the uh, national government. But we want it to be approved at the community level, maybe a regional level or state level. Okay, got it, got it, got it. Okay, so that's all logistical stuff. Um, So I want to ask you one quick thing before you go. What is your prediction for the future? You do have some thoughts about what's coming in the future, and I just want to let you express those. In the last global financial crisis that began in 2007, we essentially bailed out the financial system, patted them on their bottoms and told them, go back to doing what you've been doing. And they did. They've done pretty much the same things they did between 2000 and 2007. And so, you know, the definition of insanity. Yeah. Keep doing the same thing. Just keep doing the same thing and you expect a different result. We will not get a different result. We're going to get the same result. We are going to crash into another global financial crisis. And I'm just hoping this time we take the Roosevelt tact, which is basically you eliminate most of the financial system. You fire all of those people who caused the crisis. Oh, well, that I'll agree you with you completely. <laughs> <laughs> well, but that, you know, that's exactly what Roosevelt did. And yeah. we could have done it this time. The problem is, you know, once you bail them out, you can't get rid of them. You, you know, see, here's the thing. I always refer to Wall Street as the modern version of organized crime, right? And yeah. I think the way to solve the Wall Street problem, at least in part, and you're going to totally disagree with this, I bet, is to deregulate Wall Street because then there will be competition. There's no startup culture hardly at all on Wall Street. It's all these just big entrenched entities, and the barrier to entry is so high, the regulatory barrier is so high, that nobody can come in. And if you look at the opposite coast, and you look at what's going on in Silicon Valley, where the barrier is very low to create a new technology, and you know you don't need a bunch of lawyers and accountants to you know go into that world... There's all sorts of innovation and competition, right? There's a there's a new product. There's every also, day, right? yeah, but there's a tremendous amount of fraud too, as we've been finding out in the last couple of years. You know, I do agree with you that having the government backstop these huge criminal organizations—they are criminal—is yeah. is a big source of the problem. So I definitely would remove the government backstop. Yeah. But the problem with the view that competition is the answer is that fraud is always the most profitable game in town. Yeah, Read right. the book by my former colleague, Bill Black, The Best Way to Rob a Bank is to Own One. Yeah, yeah. Fraud always wins. Uh-huh. Right. Fraud always wins. You can't compete with fraud. I, I like the and quote. So everyone I, like, does I, like, it. I like this quote. If you have a gun, you can rob a bank. If you have a bank, you can rob the world. <laughs> That's right. It's That's sad, right. sadly so true. I just don't buy the argument that unregulated banks is going to work out because unregulated banks, you will have nothing but fraud. Well, I didn't didn't say completely unregulated. I just said reduce the barriers. And I'm not necessarily saying the banks directly. I'm saying the ability to go public. We saw that under the Jobs Act a bit. You know, I mean, there's all sorts of new innovation in the crowdfunding space. And, And of course, there's some fraud, no question about it. But, you know, that was the first real revision to the Securities Act of 1933, for God's sake. I mean, how long did it take us to 
get anything new in that world. And and there's a whole innovative uh, startup culture that came out of that. So, you know, I'm just saying. I'm not completely yeah. disagreeing with yeah. you that a lot of the regulations are by design to protect the biggest institutions. They, they protect I, the monopoly. I don't disagree with the that The government has given them a monopoly. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. Good stuff. Give out your website and tell people where they can find you. I guess the best website would be the Levy Institute. If you just do www.levy.org, it will get you there. That's not the official <laughs> URL, but that one will take you there. There are hundreds and hundreds of working papers and policy briefs and policy notes, and I wrote my share of them. They can also find Hyman Minsky's writings there, the guy we were talking about at the beginning. Fantastic. And there's a fair amount on MNT and all that stuff. Good stuff. Well, Professor Randy Ray, thank you so much for joining us. Appreciate the discussion. Okay, thanks a lot. Join us March 23rd and 24th for the 2019 Meet the Masters of Income Property. Let's break this down and look at some of the strengths of income property as an asset class. I found that this event is really helpful because I'm totally a newbie to real estate investment. And so I picked up so much information. One of the great things about it is that it's so fragmented, right? Embrace the fragmentation. Uh, I've actually been learning a lot about the tax benefits to uh, real estate and a lot of, I've been investing actually well over 10 years now and I learned a lot of new things today. The other advantage of this weekend is networking. Meeting new property managers, meeting new area specialists and, and seeing the product they have to offer, that changes year by year. Register now at jasonhartman.com masters. Thank you so much for listening. Please be sure to subscribe so that you don't miss any episodes. Be sure to check out the show's specific website and our general website, hartmanmedia.com, for appropriate disclaimers and terms of service. Remember that guest opinions are their own. And if you require specific legal or tax advice or advice in any other specialized area, please consult an appropriate professional. And we also very much appreciate you reviewing the show. Please go to iTunes or Stitcher Radio or whatever platform you're using and write a review for the show. We would very much appreciate that. And be sure to make it official and subscribe so you do not miss any episodes. We look forward to seeing you on the next episode.